Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 82 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you doing? I hope you had a great week. Hey, Arvi, uh, thanks for watching. Great to see you as well. Hope you guys are having a great week, a great start to the week. I'm going to dive right into it because I'm excited to get into conversation with my guest today. My guest is Daniel Levin. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hey, great to be here. How are you, Nathan? And I'm so good. I'm so good. And again, thank you for shifting to today. It's really appreciated. Easiest thing in the whole world to do. <laughs> cool. So let me, uh, let me talk about you for a second. Uh, you walked away from an opportunity to run a billion-dollar business in order to hitchhike around the world uh, looking for happiness and inner peace. You also studied in a seminary for five years and left the day before you became a rabbi. And you also lived as a monk in a monastery for 10 years. You worked for Hay House in business development. You grew Hay House from $3 million to $100 million in revenue. Incredible. And like myself, you're a rare blend of businessman and mystic uh, who sees the unseen. Is that a fair uh, description of you? Uh, way too fair. You know, what I always like to say to people is, as beautiful as that all is, and it comes off of my bio, so I, I'm guilty for handing you something, right? Sure. None of it really matters, does it? Because all that really matters today is do we impact each other? Do we uplift each other? Do we say something or feel something in the quality of our voice or in the words that we say that allow people to start to look at life a little bit differently? If we do, your introduction to me could have been he's lived under a bridge for 62 years. It wouldn't matter because what they've experienced in this moment is so beautiful. If that doesn't happen, none of what we say here really makes this moment any better for a person listening. So I really say as beautiful as the past is, it's really the past. Let's really sort of see what we can create in this hour that we have together to see if we can blow people's minds. Why not? Yeah, it's this beautiful paradox of life. You know, the more I, or the older I get, I think the more I understand the paradox of life where we can celebrate the past and we should be grateful for all of our experiences. And if we carry that too much into the future, it can become something that we hold on to and can become toxic yeah. in a way. Yeah, and, and you and I have seen it all along. You know, we see so many people who live telling you, walking into the room boasting about who they were. Yeah, but today they can barely rub the two coins together. Yeah, or uh, the guy that was on the high school football team who still talks about the glory days of the football yeah. team and the, yeah. his best years are behind him. Yeah, there's yeah. a beautiful story that I talk about in the Mosaic. Oh, Mosaic uh, is your book? Mosaic is my book. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play it for you. Thank you very much. Um, there's a story about a street artist and the street artist just sits in the street and people come to him and give him broken pieces of things that used to be beautiful. Mm. And because the street artist has tuned into things, like one of the beautiful things that I've realized in the world that we live in is everything in the world talks to us. I was just in a bead shop yesterday and the man was talking to me and he was telling me stories about these beads. And I, I literally got so intoxicated by the feeling of just the things that these beads were saying. But the street artist was talking about the fact that people come and give him all of these broken pieces. And when he sits with them, the broken pieces say, I wish you would have seen me when I was part of this beautiful vase, or I made the most beautiful frame, or I was part of this incredible immaculate statue. 
And now I'm just a broken piece. And the mosaic looks, the mosaic maker, who is the street artist, looks at them and says, ah, but if you were still that vase, you would never be able to be a part of what I'm about to create with you right now because you cannot make a mosaic with a vase and a, and a statue. And I mean, you can, it would be interesting, right? Yeah. But, but the beauty of what I'm about to do is put all of these pieces together and create something so much more exquisite than anything that you've ever been before. And so for me, the beauty of life is not who we used to be. Those pieces were me talking about what I used to be. And don't you understand? I helped Hay House grow from, from a $3 million to $100 million. I mean, wow, isn't that spectacular? But I didn't help do that on my own. Nobody does that on their own. We did that as a group of people together that did something really beautiful. So I love the image of the mosaic. I love the book, The Mosaic. I love the stories of The Mosaic. But what I really love is the fact that its story is meant to tell us that on our own, we can only be what we can be. But together, we can be so much more. It resonates with me in the way that it's creative. It's creative as opposed to grasping onto something or holding on to an identity or holding on to something about yourself. It's more of a manifesting creative yeah. uh, way of being where it's like, okay, instead of I can let go of who I was yesterday in order to see what, what this current experience brings me, see what I can create out of that. Alan, you just said that I had such a rush because yeah. like how beautiful is that? And how many people can do that? Not many. Not many people can say every, I let go. Like when I go to sleep at night, I leave the day to that day. And wake up in the morning with this thought of, what will today bring? And it becomes such an exciting, exuberant way to live life because we have no idea what's in store in, ahead of us. We have no idea what's around the next corner. And one of the things I say through Mosaic all the time is we are one piece away from an entirely new reality. Mm, if we can be open to it, if we can yeah. embrace new things. We are one piece away, even if we can embrace it. If we can embrace it, we can experience it. But we are just that one. I mean, one piece away from us is a whole nother world. Yeah, this is, I don't know why this has come up to me, but it, it resonates me with me in terms of income. And it's a funny place to go. But I think so often we have this identity of we're a $50,000 a year person. We're a $100,000, probably even like a million dollar a year person. And we are that identity. And we can see a linear path, how we can slowly go up. But we can't imagine an identity where we're a $10, 20000000 million person or yeah. something so far removed, even though we may be one step away from that, if we could conceive yeah. of it. Well, in my life, I've watched it go both ways. I've yeah, you seen must people, have made a lot of money. I've seen people, I'm myself also, and I've seen others. But I've seen people who had nothing that all of a sudden one day woke up and had everything. It was like they, they couldn't believe it. Mm. And they had been slaving away and slaving away. And you're so right. The consciousness break. They, they talk about people who win the lottery, who have nothing. And in five years, they're broke again because they, they don't understand what to do with it. They just spent everything. But I've also watched it the other way. I've watched people that were living on top of the world suddenly lose everything. The beggar that I talk about in my book, the story of him sitting on the street, 
he was one of those people that I was fortunate enough to meet. And when I sat down next to him on the street, because I was going through a very weird time where I was feeling everybody on the street and I was feeling their pain. Someone would walk by, they had a pain in their knee and my knee hurt and it made me trip over. Someone's heart was going through palpitations and I could feel them. It was just so weird. It was this moment of connectedness that I very rarely have. And so I slithered over to where a beggar was sitting against the wall. And he said, this is my spot. Get out of here. I said, no, 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 you're completely okay. But whatever pain you feel is so much more comforting than what I'm walking by here. Let me just sit with you. I don't want anything from you. I just want to sit here and just recover. And we started talking. And I said, how did, how did you end up being here? And he said, one bad moment from someone I believed in landed me on the street corner because I lost everything. So we have no idea what tomorrow holds. And we have to hold on to this moment, not because we were scared to let it go, but just because this moment has something that can give us all that we need. I told you before we came on, I'm doing this interesting experiment. You turned me on to the surrender experience or the surrender experiment, whatever mm-hmm. that is. And I've got to read that book. What a, what a fabulous idea. But I always spoke about a God. I, I call it God. You can call it the universe. You can call it whatever you want. I don't call it God in the, in the mosaic. I call it the mosaic. So let's call it the mosaic. That the, the mosaic connected everybody to exactly what they needed. But I never lived that way. I always struggled to get my due. I always, I always worked hard to be the best at what I did. I always did what I, I thought I had to do to make money. And so one day, just, not, just a few months ago, I said, I wonder if I have the courage to believe really in the thing that I tell everybody else to believe in, that this force, this mosaic will take care of us, that if we connect to it, if we allow it to enter us, It will take us where we need to go. It'll make those connections for us. We don't have to struggle. We don't have to worry. That was never the intention. And so I'm about three months in. There are moments when I'm scared shitless, pardon my language. (laughs) And there are moments when I feel so incredibly high. I feel happy and peaceful because everything right in this moment is fine. I have a beautiful roof over my head. I have. A, I live in a great area of town. I'm a few blocks from the beach. I'm married to a wonderful woman. We have great kids. We're eating all too well. And yet, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Even whether I worry about it or I don't worry about it, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Is it this experience of, let me just say hi to Wayne and everybody else that's uh, watching, by the way. Wayne, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions or you want to contribute feel free to comment. This is an interactive show. And guys, I'm so grateful for you guys to be here with us and and joining Daniel and I. What I resonated with as you were talking is I've always had a great trust in the universe or something bigger or a source or the fact that I'm, how I would describe my highest belief is that everything is happening to take me towards my highest expression, my highest purpose. Beautiful. And so it doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always look good. It doesn't always make sense. But if I can trust that belief that I'm moving towards my highest potential expression, whatever you want to call it, that empowers me. And as you were talking, I realized, oh, and I trust that 83%. Right, right. (laughs) And there's uh, 17% where I still think I have to do my bit. And it sounds like you might resonate with that because you're you're a man of uh, belief and faith. And it sounds like you've gone to 100%. 
Well, yeah, some days, you know, but there's some <laughs> days that I'm at 0%. Mm. I am a disciple of a man by the name of Paramahansa Yogananda. I don't talk about it much, but mm. I spent 10 years in a monastery, uh, not under him, under his, one of his top disciples. There's a story that he tells in his book, Autobiography of a Yogi, that completely shrivels me, completely makes me like, oh my God, how, how much I would long to be that person. There was a man who felt incredibly drawn to one of his teachers by the name of Babaji. Babaji has taken the form of an 18-year-old boy and continues to stay as an 18-year-old boy throughout all of time. And so the story is he made a pact that he would stay on earth and protect earth and Jesus would protect earth from heaven. And the two of them would make this joint partnership to watch over the earth and make sure everything goes okay. Well, Babaji walks through the lands invisible most of the time. He has a small group of disciples that follow him. And this man said, I just, my life isn't worthwhile if I can't be with him. And he went to the Himalayas where Babaji walked. And he said, I'm just going to sit here. And I know I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to sit here. And I know when he comes by me, if he comes by me, I will feel him. And lo and behold, he's sitting there for years. And he feels this presence walk by. And he opens his eyes and he has the gift of being able to see Babaji passing by him. And he gets up and he runs to him. He says, Babaji, Babaji, I've been sitting here for years. My life is worthless if you will not take me as your disciple. Babaji said, what would you do? He said, if you don't accept me as your, your disciple, I'll jump off this mountain. Babaji said, go ahead. And without missing a beat, the man ran to the, ran to the side of the mountain and just jumped off without missing a step. Babaji looked at his band of disciples and snapped his fingers and said, we got some work to do. He transported down to the bottom of the mountain, put the pieces of the man together, hit him on the forehead. And he became one of Babaji's disciples at that moment. But he had to see that that was true. I thought, do I have that faith that I would run off that mountain? I talk about it, but do I have that faith? And this is this experiment that I'm doing is not to jump off a mountain quite yet, because I don't think I would. I, I, I hope I would, but I don't think I would. Where has it been tested? It's being tested financially as the biggest place. That's my big weak spot. Mm. My big place where I doubt is around income. Mm. And very common. Very common. And so I just said, I'm not going to sell anybody anything anymore. I'm going to try and make myself so intoxicating that if somebody wants something, even if they come and ask me to help them, I'm going to say no. I'm going to wait for them to ask me three or four or five times just to know that I'm not hypnotizing people or, or doing something to people because, and I've had people say, oh, I absolutely have to work with you. I said, okay, great. Think about it for a few days and call me back. I haven't heard from some mm -hmm. of them. I have heard from, but it's about having the courage to know that there is something there that will take care of me. And if that something puts me under that bridge that I spoke about before, that's okay too. Now I'm married with kids. I don't know if I've, I've talked to them about it, but I said, you know, you don't have to come with me on this journey. You can do what you do, but I have to go through this. So mm. far we've been lucky. So far we've been taken care of so far, but I still say so far, I still say, you know, and, yeah, and, and, and what lucky. you yeah. And what you said earlier is, oh, so we've been lucky for $20,000 or $25,000, but we'll be lucky for $20 million. And some of the things that I'm initiating right now are so magnificent. 
that we'll never have to worry again if they come to be, mm. when they come to be. And I know I'm being guided in this direction. And I would have never been able to do it if I stayed selling coaching packages. It's just boring. The uh, surrender experiment, the way he defines it is, because it, we can get a little bit caught up, I think, around this uh, in the semantics. <laughs> and the surrender experiment, he talks about not honoring your personal preferences. So not looking at like or dislike. Mm-hmm. And so he spent his mornings meditating deeply, connecting with himself in order to quiet that voice, quiet the voice that has preferences. And we have lots of labels for that, right? Yeah. And then trusting what came into his awareness yeah. and saying yes to whatever was presented to him. So, yeah, it's very different. But as things kind of presented to him, there were things that he, talking about Michael Singer, who wrote The Surrender Experiment, he didn't look at them and go, oh, that's not something I want to do. He yeah. went, it's been presented with me and I trust that. Yeah. Well, I don't even think he gave it that much thought. He just yeah. said yes. It's interesting because clearly what I've done through the mosaic is very different. But the story is about a boy who loses his parents two years apart on the same day. And when he asks the adults where his parents are, they tell him they're in a place called heaven. He sets out immediately to find that place called heaven. He has nothing. He doesn't even think to take food or clothing or anything. He just walks out the door and knows that he'll find this place called heaven. And yet the people that he meets along the way sort of surprise him because they're not what he thinks he'll meet. They're not the custodians that he thought heaven would have. They're a trash man and a street artist and a juice man and a blind woman and a homeless guy and a gardener. And he thinks, what am I doing with these people? Like, why would I meet them? But he says, I'm here with them anyway. As long as I'm here with them, why don't I listen to their story? And when he takes a moment to listen to their story, he realizes the person he initially saw is not at all the person they are. We always say, don't judge a book by its cover, but we all do for the most part. And when he realized over and over again that what he saw was not at all what was his, then it was only then that he met a monk who unzipped the sky and walked him through to a parallel reality where he met the wise one. And he thought, wow, this is, this is fabulous. This is amazing. And then as soon as he had that thought, he was back on earth. And that's when he met uh, street artists. So he met the wise one who gave him an experience of the mosaic where he saw everything was connected. And the next moment he was sitting with the street artist looking at broken pieces and, and building mosaics. And the street artist asked him, Mo, what do you see when you look at these broken pieces? And he didn't trust himself enough to say, I see that beautiful mosaic that just has become broken here. He said, I see broken pieces too. And the street artist looked at him and said, do you think it's a coincidence that you were just with the, with the wise one? Do you think it was a coincidence that you just had an experience of, of the wholeness of the whole universe? And now you're sitting with a, he who was making a mosaic up there. And now you're sitting with a, a street artist making, putting together the broken pieces. It's no coincidence. This is our job. Our job is to reconnect the disconnected. And so he sets out. And so what I love about what you said about the story, the book, the other book, is that we can't afford to have doors open and not walk through them. We'll walk through some of them and we'll, and they'll close or we'll walk into a wall. So what? It doesn't matter. We'll walk through some of them and we'll feel like, oh my God, this is an opportunity. 
that opportunity will open up worlds for us. We're one connection away, one piece away. And when you realize that no matter how, how bad things are, how good things are, how troubled you are, how peaceful you are, you're one connection away from something entirely new. Uh, oh, I was just, uh, I was swimming in that story with you. <laughs> Tell me. Floating through it. Uh, yeah, let me just uh, read Karen's comment here because I saw it there. Uh, Karen said, I had the wonderful pleasure of reading the mosaic early on. Daniel is a gift and his sharing of the mosaic was such a treat. Karen, what a nice thing to say. When you can do something that touches one person and it gets that type of response, I, I, it makes life worthwhile, right? Absolutely. I remember when I started the show, you know, two and a half years ago, I just thought if one person listened, yeah, that would be enough. Yeah. Yeah, and now we true. have now we have three listeners. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> very proud of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you you you, met, you were making me think that how you know whatever that voice is that stops you from leaning in or being open to experiences or maybe saying yes to things that don't fit your personal preferences. That and let me preface this: a lot of people that are watching are either uh, in jobs and looking to start their own. Uh, business or lead into this journey, or they have their own business, coaching business, or a business where they're you know, trying to make a difference and they're trying to grow that impact in some way. And I think oftentimes that fear comes up. And what I'll say to people is, you can only see what you stand to lose. Mm. That's the trouble with the mind. The mind only has a reference point for what it can lose. It doesn't have a reference point of all the things that could happen or all the infinite possibilities. And so if you stay listening to that fear and you stay listening to those thoughts, it's always going to feel small and like you can lose something. Whereas if you can silence that and be open to this practice that we're talking about, surrendering or trusting something bigger, so much is possible. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that from my own experience, if I could. Of course. Because I, I very clearly have two voices. I don't know if they come from the mind and the heart. I don't know where, I don't, I'm not that sensitive, maybe. I, I think they probably don't come from either of those places. But there is a place, there is certainly a voice that I have that says, Danny, you are not good enough. And when I tell you what I'm about to do, you'll understand why. This, it, it scares me right off the, I mean, there is no, there is no fear level big enough to put this parameter on because I'm a visionary, but I don't, know how to, I don't know how to execute this idea. But there's another voice. And maybe it's not a challenge at all. Maybe you're saying the same thing. But I hear, my mind helps me occupy that space. My mind helps me grow that idea. My mind thinks through how do we do this together that says, you can't do it, you're right. But the force that comes through you can do anything. Let's sit down for a minute as if we were playing basketball. You're, do, you're playing a great game. But when you think you can't make that shot, let's sit down now and bring in the guys that do think they can make that shot. And we have big guns behind us, whether we call it the universe or God or, or our helpers or guides or mentors or whatever we want to call it. We have big guns in, in, our, in our holster. And when we feel we can't do it, I say to people, you're right. Now let the one who can do it come through you. Tony talks about it as 
when Danny one can't do it, go into Danny two, you know, reinvent that part and just say, okay, you're right. It's like a rocket ship that takes off when it leaves the ground. It has enough thrust to take the rocket a certain height, but it's adding too much weight at one point, And they just let go of that part of the rocket ship in space. And it just ignites it further because now all that power is taking us something that weighs less. Do the same thing. Allow yourself to be that rocket ship. Let's not hold on to all this stuff that keeps us bound to Earth. It was great to get us to this altitude. But at this altitude, we need to be lighter and, and wiser and, and, and surrender more. And let that force come through us because there's nothing that can't do. And I'll sit there and say, even then, well, why would you use this broken vessel to do that? There's so many people that are more capable and more talented. And, you know, sometimes I'll hear, I'll hear them smile and I'll hear the voice just smile and say, you know, when you're broken, I love you more because what I give leaks out in so many different places. It doesn't have, we don't have to wait for it to overflow. It can just leak out through all your holes. The world, here's one thing I would love to leave with people. Nothing is as it seems. Nothing. And when we start to think that we have a sense of what's going on, guaranteed, we have no sense of what's going on. We see what we see, but we don't see all the other things that we don't see. And the beautiful story of the mosaic is about, just like Mo would look at these people and see one thing at first, and then when he sat with them, he would see something else. Well, the longer he would sit with them, the more he would see, if he would do that. And so... What would we see if we could see what we don't see? We see 2% of the perspective of the world. What is the other, what, 358? <laughs> to make 360, I guess that would be 358. What would that show us if we could see that? What would we see if we can't, if we could see what we couldn't see? What would we be able to do if we let our team help us? What would we be able to do if we surrendered to this force that comes through us? And that's just not a mystical God force. Those are people every day that are sitting around us that want to give us something. I, I, I interviewed a woman just the other day who was a nomad who traveled for two years. She was 26 years old, corporate job, being very successful, decided, I don't want to get away from this. This isn't me, and, and decided to be a nomad. She went to 26 different countries in a year and was living the, the time of her life, meeting people, having fun. And suddenly her she noticed her hands and feet were going numb. Within three months, she was a quadriplegic and she, was, she couldn't get out of her chair. And I said, how did you deal with that? And she said, I loved my life when I was a nomad and I loved my life when I was in that chair. I just loved it. And I said, how is it possible? I, I hear you speaking my language, but I don't understand a word you're saying. How is that possible to love this body that completely betrayed you? She said, because it was only then that I saw the kindness of people. I would roll by somebody being pushed behind me by somebody. And I would just smile at them. And they would stop and they would hold my hand. They would brush my hair. They would sit with me and just hold me pure strangers. She said, I would have never allowed that to happen before. I thought I was open, but I would have never had that experience. And when I interviewed her, I was trying to interview her in Guatemala because it was the first trip she took since she started getting some feeling back. She's about 60% recovered from this thing that nobody said she would ever recover from. Wow. So the story is so interesting because it went, it went away and now it's coming back and now she's sort of there and now... But... 
We have no idea. Nothing's what it seems to be. I guess that's my message for today because we have no idea what's right around the corner, right? But it's fascinating. Mm. And what do we do when those things come? There's something, if we understood what you said earlier, that everything is for our well-being, we don't, it might not appear to be. It doesn't look that way. Sometimes it looks like, holy Toledo, what the, why am I getting this stuff? I mean, don't you have anybody else to play with? I remember uh, there was a story when I was in the monastery that they told of St. Teresa of Lazur. And St. Teresa of Lazur had a vision of Jesus. And Jesus said, what can I do for you? She said, you can answer this question for me. Why do you treat me so so harshly? Why do you give me so much pain? I've given you my whole life and I just have pain after pain and suffering after suffering. Why would you do that to me? And Jesus said to her, I do that for all my friends. And she, without missing a beat, said, no wonder, Lord, you have so few. Because who wants to put up with that, right? Yeah. (laughs) But... We don't even know why we're being given the things we're given. In that story, I do that to all my friends. Who would imagine that would have been the response? Yeah, it's often um, my brother and I were joking yesterday because uh, he reminded me of something. He went into a 10-day silent meditation retreat. And I spoke to him just before he was going in. And I said, well, I hope it's a horrible experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, and... uh, he reminded me of that when I was talking about my improv show. You know, he's, oh. he goes, I hope it's a horrible experience because that's <laughs> that's what you're going to learn. Yeah. So I think part of our gift as, uh, as teachers or mentors or coaches or whatever label you want to put on it is to have the courage to take people into the fire or have people to you know, take people into the uh, the darker parts of themselves or the yeah. scarier parts of themselves in order to see something bigger. Or get something bigger. So I see myself a little bit differently. And again, of course I would because I'm me and you're you and not, neither one's better or worse. Mm. There was a beautiful monk by the name of Thich Nhat Hanh who unfortunately said this better than what I the way I could say it. Um, and so I just love him and I just say his name all the time and tell him, tell him the way he says it because he captured exactly what it was that I was trying to do. I see myself as just this person that has the ability to hold the space. I used to hold it inside me, but it became so painful. I couldn't do that anymore. So I just hold it out here. And when I see somebody going through something, I say, if you trust me enough, I'm holding the space for you. It has nothing to do with me. It's just a space that I'm going to create for you right here. And when, if you want to, I'm going to hold that so you can pour all your suffering, all your pain, all your turmoil, Just empty it all into this bag. I won't take it anywhere. It'll be here for you whenever you want it. But just give yourself the opportunity to just empty into it. And Thich Nhat Hanh says, they might even say to you, well, it's because of you that I'm feeling this suffering. And then it's not a time to defend yourself or rationalize or tell them why you're what they think is wrong. You just say, tell me more, please. Just keep pouring it in. Like, let go of it all. Bring it all into this space. And the compa- he calls it compassionate listening. And the compassion of the listening is to allow them to feel for a moment the exquisiteness of what it feels like not to have to carry that around for a moment. And it's there for them. And the reason why I, I always was drawn to that or words that I was trying to formulate to create that is because one of the characters in my story is a trash man. And he does exactly the same thing. His space holder is the trash truck. 
And he says, when you're ready, I come every week to take all the things that you don't want. And sometimes I'll have a little extra time and I'll see you trying to labor to bring something down to me. And I'll ask you, can I help you to bring it down? Sometimes I'll just see you walking on the street and I'll feel something heavy in you. And I'll ask you for no reason at all. Do you have anything you want to put in the truck? Which is what he did in the story. (laughs) And Mo looked around. He said, I'm not carrying anything. I don't have anything. The street's clean. What the hell are you about to talk about? And then he looked at the twinkle in his eye and he realized it wasn't physical trash. It was it was emotional trash or spiritual trash or, or mental trash. And he just fell to the ground crying. He said, there's so much of that. I don't even know where to start. And the trash man said, just let your tears come. I'm here for you. I have all the time in the world. That's my job. I'm a trash man. And so you wouldn't think that that's an exalted position. You wouldn't think that if your son or daughter came to you and said, I want to be a trash person, that you would support them in that. But I remember at four years old, sitting outside my house every Friday morning when the trash truck would come and I would watch the trash men. And after six months of sitting there, one of them said, as four-year-old kid, do you want to ride the truck with me? Because they rode the truck in the back and they got down and took the can. They said, you want to ride the truck with me? I'll, I'll hold you on. And I said, are you kidding? And my mom looked out at me getting on the truck. She said, where, Danny, where are you going? I said, mom, I'm going to ride the trash truck. And she was about to kill herself because that's not what she wanted me to become when I, got, when I grew up. But lo and behold, I've become a trash man. I have become that person that holds that space for people to empty all of their trash into. And when they're ready, we put it in the truck, grind it up and drive off. If my son would come to me today and say, I want to be that trash man, I would invest every dollar I had in that career because our world needs that trash man. I don't know how we got caught on that story, but that's a I love that story. story. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it reminds me of a community. I run a small community program. It's 15 entrepreneurs in the community. And one of uh, my beliefs and one of the mantras is that you don't need to wear any masks in this community because so many people have to be someone, whether it's, uh, I mean, you said it yourself, right? As you practice the surrender experiment, you're like, well, I still have to be a husband and a father. Yeah. Right? So, uh, I often say, like, when you come into this community, even just for the small time that we have together each week, you don't have to be a dad. You don't have to carry the weight of being uh, a son or a daughter or a boss or a leader or an entrepreneur or a coach. Yeah. You can take those masks off and just relax. I love that. I love that. I would be a part of your community tomorrow. Awesome. So uh, we're recruiting trash men, actually. Okay, I love that. I have lots of other skills. I can be a gardener too. Perfect. I can be a juice man. I can be all the guys in my book. They've taught me well. Um, So cool. But so let's go back a little bit to a pre-conversation. Sure. Because it's sort of as much as I've been pushing it down, and it could be it could be semantics like we were talking about, and it couldn't be. It might not be. So I just want to engage for a moment in this conversation of how extraordinary we think we have to be. Yeah, because we started talking, you know, part of my mantra is to help people create extraordinary lives. Yeah. And our community I just mentioned is called the Extraordinary Life Community. There you go. And the first time we got on the phone, you said, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure yeah. about this phrase. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, I believe we've been sold a bill of goods. And the bill of goods is that ordinary isn't okay, that ordinary isn't beautiful, 
And yet when we look at the world around us, when we look at nature, the most ordinary thing in the world is a sunrise. There is nothing more magnificent than a sunrise. When we look at the world, we see the buds of flowers blooming after a long winter in the springtime. It happens every springtime. There's nothing more ordinary than that. We look at the, the very 24 hours of, that make up the course of a day. And we saw that night follows day and day follows night. Nothing more ordinary than that. And yet somehow we believe we have to be more than that. We believe ordinary isn't good enough. We believe we have to be extraordinary. And so what I find is that people who are trying to be extraordinary or people that want to be extraordinary feel somehow entitled. They feel like the world, they have a special gift and the world needs to have them. When I was sitting with and had lunch with Carolyn Mace one day, she was the one that beat the pulp out of me with this idea. <laughs> and she said, I said, I was, I was telling some old story about my life, about how I was just you know, doing okay and I was getting by and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, my wife died and I have a developmentally delayed kid and blah, blah, blah. And she said, will you shut the heck up? I mean, you know how long I've been hearing you say that? I said, come on, Carolyn, you know I'm an extraordinary human being. And she said, BS, you're not extraordinary because extraordinary people think they belong at the front of the line and they'll cut in front of everybody else. Extraordinary people think they're entitled to a better world than everybody else. You're not that person. What's wrong with rediscovering the exquisiteness of the ordinary? And part of what happens when we think we have to be more than ordinary is we set a bar up here for ourselves that most likely we can't achieve most of the time, which causes us to find self-loathing. And we always are putting ourselves down because we're not who we think we should be. Why aren't we okay with who we are? I loved what you said to me. We have this group where we don't have to wear masks. We don't have to be anybody. We don't have to be a dad. Why do we have to be extraordinary then? And I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm sure you have your answer. No, no, no. I, you're not putting me on the spot at all. It's a beautiful conversation. And I think it's, it's both and. I, I don't think it's one or the other. I don't think you either be ordinary or extraordinary. In fact, the way of being that you're describing to me is an extraordinary way of being because most people don't live life with uh, present to the exquisite nature of the ordinary. Yeah. So by the fact that most people don't do that, to be someone that is present and living a life that way is extraordinary, ironically. <laughs> so, okay. So, so, so yeah, that, it's, it's, that's how I look at it. It's not, uh, and you're absolutely right. There is a, a way that people striving to be extraordinary can come from a place of lack and come from a place of, well, I'll be worthy when I'm extraordinary or some, some version of that, or I'll be, or when I'm extraordinary, life will be amazing. What I tend to feel is that what's ordinary in a lot of cases is numbing yourself out through different activities, drugs, alcohol, sex, you know, tick, tick, tick for me, by the way. And so if you're someone that can not do that and can really face all the things you're avoiding and look to do all the things we've just spent 45 minutes talking about, being present, being uh, in the moment, surrendering to your source, that is not ordinary in terms of that's not what most people, that's not the experience that most people are having of life. So 
Uh, first of all, I love the conversation and I love your input and I love your, your comments. But I really would like to ask people to examine the way they believe and the way they think. Because once we define ordinary as being subpar, mm. nobody wants to be ordinary. Once we define ordinary as those people who can't deal with their emotions and sexify, drugify, alcoholify their lives. Okay, yeah, and I've done it too. I'm an older man now, so it's less important to me because there is a certain contentment that comes when we accept the ordinariness of who we are. And that contentment... But that's extraordinary. No, that's not extraordinary. That's what you've given a definition of extraordinary too. But we've taken, we've been taught so often that ordinary is bad that we make the most ordinary things in the world extraordinary. You, I bet you would say to me, a sunrise is extraordinary. But we know the exact moment and the day that it's going to happen. It happens every single day. What's ordinary then? If it's not something that happens every single day with the, and we, we can predict to the moment when it's going to happen. Those are ordinary occurrences. It isn't ordinary for us to get hurt, to feel pain and, and try and block our pain with activity. That's painful situations. That's pain response therapies. That's what we've grown to be. Ordinary is that we know that the, the day, is, sometimes it rains and sometimes it's sunny. But that doesn't make the day less ordinary than any other day. The flower needs the rain and it needs the sun. All those things make it. It's part, of, it's part of the whole totality of life. And when someone has the ability to live in the ordinary moment, we believe that's extraordinary. But that's not extraordinary. That's the ability to live an ordinary life in the ordinary moment. That's the ability to take each moment as what it is. That's not extraordinary. It's only extraordinary because the definition that we've given to it in the past has been, oh, no, so few people do that. But I believe so few people do that because everybody's looking for where their superpowers are and, where, and here's where my costume is and here's who I have to be. And we silo ourselves in these silos that we don't let people see ourselves because we're scared to death of the person you'll see when you see me. So I build a silo and I paint it with what I hope you'll think I am, while all the while I'm sitting crying, shriveled up like a little baby, hoping you'll never look over the wall. That's not ordinary. That's pain. That's not extraordinary. Someone who walks out isn't extraordinary. Someone who walks out and says, hey, this is who I am, has the beautiful exquisiteness to say, I take myself for all my flaws, all my greatness, all my problems. I'm the most ordinary of all human beings. But we grew up with Superman and Batman. And we think Clark Kent is nobody and Superman is everybody. What I'd love to do is for people to take a look at some of the things they believe, that we believe, and allow life itself to challenge those viewpoints. And do you think that has a greater impact on people, that lens? Yes, huge greater impact. Because no longer are we striving to be something we're not. No longer are we trying to put out a persona of who we are to make you think I'm better than I am. Well, all the while, I know I'm not any good. When I know that I'm ordinary, then what happens is I look to the life that's inside me and I say, I'm just an ordinary guy. The power that comes through me is extraordinary. 
That's what has power. And I can surrender and I can humbly say, I can't do anything without you. I had a spiritual teacher who would teach and people would come up to him and say, that was an amazing talk. And he would point to the picture behind him and say, God's the doer. I didn't do that. This guy, he just did it through me. And the woman, one woman, I was standing with him when he said that. She said, well, I didn't realize it was that good. You know, I just, right. But the ordinariness of a human being allows them to understand they are not the doer in any of this. Anything that comes through them comes through them because of this force that comes through and the broken vessel that I am that leaks out the goodness that's put into it is only made better because it's so so ordinary as opposed to, no, I'm extraordinary and I'm the power and I'm the force. I love what Wayne's saying here, right? Yeah, I mean, it is paradox and it is profound. So I'm going to change my community name to Ordinary Life. <laughs> what, what I would love to see you at least consider, people like, don't do it because I'm, I'm saying it. No, look, I, and I'm with you. I, I'm, yeah. I'm being playful with you just for totally. the conversation, but I'm 100% with you. But what I'd love people to do, how often do we challenge core beliefs that we have? Mm. Beliefs are just beliefs. They're not facts. If they were facts, they would be facts, not beliefs. Right. And so what we believe, we hold on to it and fight for it. We're creating wars in the country because of what we believe, but none of it's true. It's time for us to get back together and challenge what we believe so that we allow ourselves to be authentically us. And all too often we believe what those around us believe and we forget to believe what we believe. And so all I ask is challenge your beliefs. We, yeah, we talked about this last time we spoke about you think that we need to stop having groups of like-minded people. Yeah, I, when I discovered my like-minded community, I was in bliss. Mm. I felt like a fish out of water who finally found my pond. And I was going, oh my God, there are other crazy mofos out there that think just like me, right? And I was so happy and it made me so thrilled. But now when I look into the world, what I see is there are silos of like-minded communities that are getting bigger and stronger while the distance between those silos of other like-minded communities are growing wider and deeper. And we're fighting each other. The like-minded communities don't can't even embrace each other because they say, no, I'm like these guys, but I'm not like you. And it's causing separation. It is the opposite of the mosaic. It is the opposite of what nature does. Birds, when they fly, I'm having a great conversation with this guy who, who does something called swarm intelligence. And we're going to use the technology to create and problem solve the world that we live in. When you look at the way birds fly, they don't fly with because a leader says fly here. They fly because they all feel in the same moment where to go. They fly in a swarm. Fish do the same thing. Bees do the same thing. If species of lesser intelligence would look at the way we make our decisions, they're laughing, saying we're supposed to be lesser intelligence. They operate in solo environments. They operate like-minded communities, reinforces people who think one way. It's time for those silos to melt down. It's time for us to be in the fields with unlike minds, because that's when innovation happens. That's when creativity happens. That's when new things happen. That's when miracles are discovered, because when I continue to see the world the way I see it, I'll only see what I see. But when I invite you to see the world, show me the way you see the world, I have an opportunity now to see something I never saw before. And yeah, if my- I, experienced, I experienced this in my uh, improv class because it's a, it was 15 people that had nothing in common. 
Yeah. You know, there was a 75-year-old guy there retired from an ad agency 20 years ago just looking to try new things. Yeah. And there was like the 25-year-old woman who just graduated her MBA at Columbia. Then there was the struggling actress. And then there was me, the life coach. You know, yeah. So it's just this phenomenally weird group of people that didn't on the outside have anything in common. And boy, that was refreshing. Yeah. I want to highlight that one thing you said, because I think the world right now sees our differences because we see on the outside, we have nothing in common. But I had the good fortune to travel the world a lot. I had the good fortune to be with the richest of people and call them my friends and be with the poorest of the poor and call them my friends. And it didn't matter what color their skin was or what religion they practiced or what border they lived behind or how much money they had or didn't have or how big their house was or if, or if, or if their house was a, a box on the street. Every single one of them wanted the same thing. They wanted to be loved and accepted. They wanted to be listened to and appreciated. They wanted to be heard and validated. Do you know not one of them asked me to agree with what they were saying? Nobody cares about whether we agree with them or not. Mm. All they want is for us to, is to be heard, to be loved, to be accepted. And that's something we can give each other. But as long as we're in our silos, it's harder and harder to do. As long as we don't challenge our realities, it's harder and harder to do. Because if I'm a socialite and I'm sitting next to a homeless guy, how can I share anything? Because our outside, our differentials are so big. But inside, we all, are, we all bleed. When we're pricked by a pin, we all bleed the same color of blood. We're far, more, we're far much more in common. Far, far, far more. On anything that matters, we're completely in common. Mm. On all the things that don't matter, we're not in common. And all the things that don't matter are creating the world that we live in, which is a world and incredible disharmony. And that's why the mosaic for me is so important. Because if we could see the person we don't see, if we could see the beneath the superficiality differences and see who's really there, we would see we're looking in a mirror. They just happen to look a little different, but they're the same as us. And in reality, they are the same as us. Quantum physics is telling us we're all made up of energy. We're not made up of solid mass. And so what they're inhaling, I've just exhaled and vice versa. And the atoms of Mahatma Gandhi are in the air that I'm breathing, as are the atoms of, of Hitler. All of it is available to us if we just choose what it is we want to inhale. Anyway. Can I ask you a selfish question just to yes. shift that slightly? Totally. totally. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Wayne Dyer. I yeah. know he's you know, one of the, the first and most famous Hay House authors. Yeah. And he still has a, a, a podcast episode that, that puts out old recordings of his show, his radio show. And so I listen to a lot of that and uh, there's a meditation that he recorded that I listened to. And to me, he is so alive. Like he's yeah. so alive. He's like the grandfather that I never had yeah. just with wisdom. And yeah, when I hear his voice, like in these very headphones, I feel so connected to that man and his message. So selfishly, having worked at Hay House, do you have any Wayne Dyer stories that you can oh, share yeah. with us? Uh, he was not the first one to come to Hay House. It actually took a long time for him to come to Hay House. Right. And, and part of the way that he came was because the way I started at Hay House is I thought Louise is drawing about a thousand people to talks on her own, Louise Hay. Mm -hmm. And I had, I she was in a She's the founder of Hay House. She's the founder of Hay House. Yeah. It was, it's her company. And I was uh, in, a, in a yoga community and the founder of our yoga community was drawing about 200 people. 
So I was always looking, how could we expand the amount of people that he could get in front of? And how could she expand the amount of people that she could get in front of? Because again, certain people like her that would never have heard him and certain people like him that would never have heard her. But they're very, what they're saying, they would, people would enjoy, I think, if they only had a chance to do it. So I thought, why don't we create something together? And I went down to Hay House. I was working in a different company then. I went down to Hay House and I said, hey, why don't we do this? And would you be willing to do it? I'll do everything. I'll do all the work. Will you, will you just support me in doing this? And they and I, that's not financial. That's not anything. Let's just let's just build this together. And they said, absolutely, let's do it. And so I said, well, if we're going to do it, why don't we get a couple more people? And why don't we make the day have four people rather than just two people? And they said, great idea. Who would you get? I said, well, you know, there's a guy that his publisher doesn't even know how to say his name. <laughs> They call him Wayne Dwyer. <laughs> Why don't we try and get Wayne to come on the stage and do something with us? Because he's a great speaker. And they said, okay. And, and I, he said, well. What year oh, is this roughly? This is, oh gosh, it's got to be like 90, 1997. And I said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand it one more person. And I said, I've got another, we have another woman that I bet we could get pretty easily. She used to be really well known. She did a book called Creative Visualizations, but she's sort of coming down the hill now. But I bet she would like to have another opportunity. Her name was Shakti Gawain. And I called her and she said, yeah, I would love to do that. And these are people sort of that I, I knew a little bit. And then I called the publishing houses and I said, who's an up and coming author that you would like to see get on the stage? And Bantam said, there's a guy you won't be sorry you take. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. Everybody tells me that, right? <laughs> I said, okay, tell me a little bit about him. And they said, he's an Indian. He was a doctor. He went to school. He's, I, I, I guarantee you, you're going to love him. I said, okay, I'll take a risk on him. His name happened to be Deepak Chopra. And so Deepak, well, we found Deepak before he was out and about. And so we had, we had Louise Hay, Swami Kriyananda, Shakti Gawain, Deepak Chopra, and Wayne Dyer. And we sold tickets for $35 to see all of them for the wow. whole day. We sold out 3,000 seats in like no time at all. Mm -hmm. When we arrived that morning for the show, there were people sleeping around the building because they were first come, first serve, and they wanted to get in first. But I remember the first time I went, Wayne was giving a talk, and I went to his talk, and his manager was a woman by the name of Maya. And I was wearing a white suit, and I came to see them, and... Maya just, she said, oh my God, there was, I felt like you were this angel. I was fit then. I was uh, about 175 pounds, bench pressing 345 pounds. And so I was strong and fit. And she said, oh my God, I just felt like you, you were this angel. And she said, I, I would I would have given you anything you wanted at that point. But I said, we just want to have Wayne do it. And he and I had a, a real fun relationship. He was He was enjoyable because everybody looked up to him and sort of idolized him. And I said, you know, you ain't that big a deal. And then when we came out with the card decks, which was one of the big things that I brought to Hay House, one of the card decks that we came out with was my deck, Zen Cards. And we had a deck by Louise, which were called Power Thought Cards. And we had the Four Agreement Cards. And we had Inner Peace Cards by Wayne. And, you know, Wayne was this big, huge name. And I was nobody. I mean, you, you could ask 100 people on the street, who's Daniel Levin? And a, a thousand would say, we don't know. And so for like a brief second in time, 
my Zen cards outsold his inner peace cards. <laughs> I, so I went up to him and I said, see, I told you, you weren't all that big a deal. Look, nobody even knows who I am and I'm outselling you. And, and he got so like, he said, that'll never happen again. I'll get you. you know. And, and lo and behold, I literally cremated me in the sales. But through that, I ended up through royalties from those cards. I ended up buying a BMW M3. So we did pretty good on those card decks. And that's what really changed Hay House. We started yeah. to get New York Times bestselling authors to write those. And then they said, we're selling so much. Why wouldn't we publish our books with you? And I said, that's a great question. The easy answer is you're getting a million dollar advance. We can't give that to you. But you're making five times the amount of money you're making on your books on our cards. And slowly, one by one. But he then became really good friends with Reed, who runs Hay House. And mm. almost like a they were either brothers or father and son. It was just, and over the course of a lot of years, he came to Hay House. It just sounded like a magical business. I'm sure there was ups and downs like every business, but yeah. it just sounded like the the underdog had kind of a yeah a, a bigger belief or a, a bigger purpose that was bigger we, than money or advances. Or, well, yeah, I don't know if we were bigger than money or advances at that time, but there were there are lots of sides to the company at that point. But what we made a decision to do is stay true to who we were. We were self-help publishers. And I remember saying to Reed, we should have every major self-help publisher. We should publish them because that's all we do. And he said, well, there's Bantam and Random House and Simon and & Schuster, and, they, and they're giving these. We'll never get those guys. I said, no, never is a long time. Let's take a stab at it. And we took a stab at it. And a lot of the one thing that's been true for me through the course of my life is I've questioned people's realities. Mm -hmm. And when you question your realities and you question your beliefs, what happens is you start to see that what you believe is only a belief. It's not a fact. And beliefs can change in a moment. And soon we had every major, every major self-help author now wants to be at AOS. And, and 25 years ago, no, he reached that they'll never come to us. Yeah. But that never is a long time. So well, I love that story. Thank you for telling me and indulging me because uh, and you touched on it there. One thing I loved about Wayne, I loved all the things that everybody loves, but he brought such a sense of humor. He, he showed moments of that in his talks and on his yeah. radio show. He had such a good sense of humor and he wasn't afraid to have a really cheeky sense of humor. Yeah. And to me, that, that really flew in the face of what so many spiritual teachers seem to be like. They yeah. seem to be sort of devoid of any kind of inappropriate yeah. humor or funny humor. And I just loved that he had that, that humanness and that humor to him. You know, he was adopted. Yeah. And, and so I don't know if it was because he was adopted or just because he was an extraordinary man or a good man. He would give a talk and there would be 2,000 people there and he would wait and surround himself with 2,000 people and he would make sure every single person got a chance to see him, touch him, talk to him, say something to him. I think it's partly because he wanted to make sure they bought his books, <laughs> but, but why not? Right. But, sure. but, but he cared about every single person that was there. And when you care that much about people, people feel that people feel it's more than just a talk. He was, he made himself available. There's some people that give talks and they're out the back door before you even have a chance to say, give the first clap. Mm. He was never like that. He was always, I am here as until the last person leaves. So hats off to him. Yeah, uh, I miss him. But like I say, he's as alive to me now as, as ever. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I've gone <laughs> way over time here, so oh, well, thanks for hanging in with me. No, don't be sorry. I was as long as it uh, hasn't upset your schedule. But uh, if people want to find out more about you or they want to grab the book, what's the best way to do that? Thank you so much. The easiest place is just to go to themosaiconline.com. That'll have all my contact information, themosaiconline.com. We can post it down below. Sure. Um, and to get the book, it's the easiest place to go is Amazon. You can get it on themosaiconline.com too, but Amazon's quick. Everybody can get it. You just click one click and it's there at your house. You know? Beautiful. It's so, a wonderful book. I hope everybody grabs a copy after this. Thank you uh, so much. Daniel, the final question before we wrap up is uh, one that we ask everybody. And it's just kind of helps us to be vulnerable and to humanize the experience. What's your dark side? And how have you learned to embrace that part of yourself? I think my dark side is the thing that's kept me from actually being more well-known than I am. Because one of the things that happened at Hay House is I watched in 100% of the cases, not 25, not 55, not 85, not 95, but in 100% of the cases. People got caught up in who people around them thought they were, and it changed them. And I always thought, you know, I don't need to be a bigger whatever than I am. Uh, not complimentary word, I was going to say, but I don't know how clean. I don't know if we have to be explicit or clean on here. So not at all, know. not at all. Okay, so, uh, you know, people went from beautiful human beings to some of the biggest assholes you ever want to meet. Mm. And it's completely understandable. And you start giving talks to three, three, five, 4,000 people, 5,000 people, and people come up to you and say how much you've changed their life, you start to believe that. And in one part of that is really good because you realize just like we had the one person say what a pleasure it was to read your book. How fabulous is that, right? It's beautiful. When you get 3,000 of them, 5,000, and it happens 300, 300 days a year, you start to believe that's who you are. You start to become entitled. They started to become there were certain people that would say, we only want green M&Ms in our, in our waiting room. They were no longer the person that I found or we found together. They, are, they become something else. And I remember sitting with one person and he said, if that ever happens to me, Danny, I want you to bend me over and kick me in the butt. And I said, really? He said, no, absolutely, really. I said, okay, bend over. And he said, no, I'm really serious. I said, no, I am too. Bend over. You just told me you wanted me to do that. Bend over. And he walked out. He didn't talk to me for three years. And I said, either you want that to happen or you don't want that to happen. If you want it to happen, ask for it. If you don't want it to happen, just be quiet. I remember so you think like the, the dark side for you is the part that's that's avoided the, the limelight or avoided putting the dark side of me. The dark side of me is the fear mm. of what my power could do, because I know what I do. I know what influence I have. I mean, I even in talking to people, I'll do podcasts and people will say to me, there's something about your voice. I feel like I'm almost hypnotized. Mm. And I don't have any idea what that is. I mean, I know that I've meditated for 45 years and I have, calm, I have a calm presence. But what that power can do to people and what, and what I've watched it do to people and what I've watched myself do to people, no one is clean. Everybody, the beautiful thing about a yin-yang is it's a white with a black dot or mm. a black place with a white dot. All of us have some of that in there. And watching that in me and checking that in me, in my book, I call him the beast. And we all have that beast in us. And that beast gives us our passion. It gives us our fire. It gives us, it gives us the ability to overcome obstacles. But it also gives us the ability to say, Arr! 
and we're not going to put up with anything. We're just mm. going to run where we want to run. There's nobody that can control us, nobody that can contain us, nobody that can do anything until there is somebody who can. There's always someone bigger and better. Great answer, Daniel. Thank you for spending this time with me. I just uh, want to acknowledge your presence. I want to acknowledge your, uh, yeah, your warmth, your openness, and uh, just your ability to share this message. Thank you. It's my honor. And as soon as you start the Ordinary Men's Club, I'm happy to be a part of it. <laughs> Founding member. <laughs> I'm happy to do it with you, brother. Thank you for Great. having me so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. Big blessing. Ciao. Thank you. Guys, thank you for tuning in. Uh, thank you for all the comments. Wayne, Karen, uh, Donna, really appreciate you guys coming and hanging out with as always. If you think someone would get something out of this, please feel free to share it around every time you... Uh, like the show or give it a comment it helps us spread it to more people so uh, if you think someone would enjoy this please i'd appreciate it and i'd love you to uh, spread it around guys thanks for uh, being here don't forget to check out the mosaic online to check out all of daniel's work and i'll be back next week with episode number 83 of the nathan seward show that was the nathan seward show inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.